Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm guest host Rick Samprin. Some U.S. companies are giving their employees an ultimatum, get vaccinated or deal with the consequences. Could Canada be next to mandate vaccines? As the rumblings of an election continue to stir, will the new governor general agree to a Trudeau request to call a snap election? And Premier Doug Ford has said Ontario's back-to-school plan should be announced next week. Don Danko, chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, joins us to discuss what they're hoping to see in that plan. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Canadians across the country, as we know, continue to roll up our sleeves to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Employers are now slowly starting to remind staff that office life is going to return and it could return for others sooner rather than later. For some companies, though, you might be required to be vaccinated before going back into the office. That's playing out right now in the United States for companies like Google, uh, Facebook, Netflix announcing their plans to require on-site employees in the U.S. to be vaccinated. So that has many on this side of the border thinking, is Canada going to be next? Andrew Fergioli, Fergioli, pardon me, is a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto and joins us now. Andrew, how are you? Good, Rick. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on. What do you make of this new development in the U.S.? Is it unsurprising given that vaccinations there have stalled? I think so. Um, I think this is something that from the beginning of the pandemic has always been, in my view, a debate that's coming on the horizon. Um, I think we all knew, um, and it's more pronounced in the states, that there would be some level of vaccine hesitancy out there. And at some point, um, that clash was going to have to play out uh, between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated in terms of requirements before we get back to normal. So I'm not surprised at all that it's happening, and uh, uh, it's uh, uh, certainly a development that I think everyone's watching quite closely. Are Canadian companies uh, likely to follow suit? There hasn't been much movement on that yet. Um, There have been a few businesses that have uh, started to say that if you want to be a customer uh, coming in, that they want you to be vaccinated. Uh, But we haven't seen much appetite from Canadian businesses yet. Um, I think realistically, the issue is going to be whether there is a a pronounced fourth wave and whether that fourth wave is, as the numbers seem to show, more concentrated in the unvaccinated. I think realistically, if that starts to happen, um, you could see some businesses that are craving to get back to normal, um, seeing that as the quickest and most effective way in their view of protecting their employees and and coming back to normal. So I think it, it will come if the fourth wave looks uh, like it's going to be as bad as, as the first three. So the question I think many are asking is, is this legal? So in terms of where this would be litigated, it, it wouldn't be in, in the federal courts. It's, it's not a criminal law issue. It, it's a worker legislation and a human rights issue. Um, the charter doesn't apply to private companies and private individuals. So it would be uh, employees taking grievances uh, to places like the Human Rights Tribunal. And there's a lot of different factors. What I can tell you, my understanding right now is the closest analog we have is mask mandates and companies that put them in and employees that challenge mask mandates. And generally speaking, those employees lose because there's a strong public health perspective or, or, or a strong public health um, 
reasoning behind ensuring mask mandates. Now, immunizations are far more invasive and forcing them, uh, uh, forcing your employees to get them before they can come back to work is much more invasive. But the early law that we have shows that right now the balance has been more on the side of public health. We're chatting with Andrew Fergielli. We're on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Andrew is a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. We're talking about some American companies potentially mandating that their workers who are returning to on-site facilities be vaccinated against COVID-19. I guess companies can make the argument that employees have the right to a safe workplace. Could that fly? Yes, that's part of the calculus. Uh, on the one hand, you'll have the unvaccinated employees who are demanding um, that their personal decisions and their liberty um, and, and their personal health decisions should take precedence, should win the should win the day. On the other hand, you'll have companies with a couple of arguments. One is that the vaccinated employees, and by extension, their families, um, uh, deserve safety, and uh, the employees deserve uh, a safe workplace. And further, uh, ensuring vaccinations furthers a public health uh, objective, which is to uh, protect and vaccinate as many people as we can and move on beyond uh, uh, this pandemic as quickly and as effectively as we can. So that's where the clash takes place. And certainly the safe workplace for the vaccinated um, would be a significant argument in front of those tribunals. If a company fires an employee, if we get to that, a company fires an employee, refuses to get the shot, I mean, that company is going to be sued, right? Yes. If if it's a unionized employee, it would be a grievance. Um, if it's a non-unionized employee, um, you would have that employee likely taking steps uh, uh, for to sue under wrongful termination law. Uh, so it, it, it will play out if it happens. There's no doubt about that. If these vaccine requirements come and if businesses start to bring them in, this will quickly be litigated. Companies, I mean, if companies on this side of the border or, or, or more so in the U.S. continue to do so, um, they have to do this confidentially. They can't round up a bunch of people in a in a boardroom and say, all right, everybody who is vaccinated, uh, you know, you're on one side of this uh, room and everybody else is on the other side. The confidentiality has to be uh, a big factor in this, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, companies have ways of doing it that, you know, they'll send individual correspondence uh, through human resources to their employees and ask for a declaration uh, that they have been vaccinated. Realistically, though, I I expect the litigants here to be um, those, generally speaking, who are happy to say that they are unvaccinated and are happy to have uh, the law tested in this way. Um, so I think in terms of the early litigants here, I think you're going to get people who are um, quite happy to to uh, have these claims litigated. There are some eth- ethical ramifications as well, whether it's, you know, someone doesn't want to get ra- uh, um, vaccinated for religious reasons or or, or help, maybe health reasons. So there is the efficacy as well uh, that plays a part in this whole discussion. Right. And and there are cutouts that can happen. Um, there There may be exceptions within. Uh, each company's policy, if they bring this in, where they say, uh, let's take the health reason for an example. If there's some uh, uh, strong health uh, justification for you not getting the vaccine, um, then they may uh, say that in those cases, if the individual comes back wearing a mask, socially distances, or 
they make accommodations for that person to continue working from home. Um, you could see uh, uh, those sort of cutouts in the policy working. Um, I think where you're going to see the litigation um, is the person who stands up and says, I'm not vaccinated because I don't want to be vaccinated. And that's my choice. And if you fire me, um, then we're going to litigate it. Well, we're going to keep tabs on this story. Andrew, really appreciate the time today. Enjoy your weekend. You too, Rick. Good talking to you. Andrew Fergielli is a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Global News contacted 13 major Canadian companies, including Amazon, uh, RBC, BMO, CIBC, to see whether they intend to implement mandatory vaccination policies. And none of those that replied expressed an intention to mandate vaccination for employees who are coming back to the office anytime soon. So there's that as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The rumblings of a federal election in this country have been growing louder by the week, really. And, and now that Mary Simon has officially become Canada's 30th governor general, you could say the clock is ticking a little louder. But there's an interesting twist in whether or not we're going to be going to the polls as early as this fall, some people are thinking. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has asked that Simon refuse any request from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to dissolve Parliament and trigger an election. There is really no reason, right? When you look at it, normally you've got to show that there's been a loss of confidence or some reason that you're holding an election. If nothing else, it really exposes that the only reason that the Prime Minister is calling this election is for the sake of power, which shouldn't be enough reason to have an election. And the governor general does have the power to make that determination. Singh said in a letter to Simon reminding her that the fixed election law states that every general election must be held on the third Monday of October, four years after the last election is held, and that the law allows for an early election if the government has lost confidence in the House of Commons. The issue is the Trudeau government, as we know, has won every confidence vote that it has faced, including um, one for speech on the throne, another for the budget. So... What could bring down the government now? Let's bring in our next guest. Her name is Dr. Lori Turnbull. She's the director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. And Dr. Turnbull joins us now. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty good. Um, Will Jagmeet Singh's request be seriously considered by Simon if Trudeau does call for an election? Uh, With with respect to him, I think not. Um, I think, you know, there's no, like, absolutely perfect formula for determining the relationship and a conversation between the prime minister and the governor general when the prime minister seeks dissolution. But we generally think that when, and it's, it's not just generally think it's convention that when the prime minister has the confidence of the house, when the house has been sitting for longer than six months, some people say nine months uh, and the prime minister goes looking for an election, there's not really a basis for the governor general to deny that request. It would be different if he, you know, went, with a speech from the throne, lost right away, and then wanted to dissolve the House, she'd probably say, well, no, you know, we're going to let somebody else give it a try. But at this point, I, I think it's highly unlikely slash pretty much close to impossible that um, Ms. Simon would deny that request. Has a governor general ever refused the PM's election request? Yes. In 1926, um, Mackenzie King knew he was about to lose confidence and so went to the governor general and asked for a dissolution. Governor general says no. It was extremely controversial at the time. Um, then asked the leader of the opposition to form a government. He lasted, I think, for about a month. And then they ended up going to general election at that point. And then Mackenzie King won his majority. And all the while, 
quite, you know, eagerly politicizing the role of the governor general and the, the involvement and who did this person think he was, you know, deciding, the, you know, the fate of, of the government kind of thing. And so it gets really tricky if a, if a governor general decides to go that route. Another example, a more recent example, was in British Columbia in 2017 when Christy Clark had, um, you know, not come back with the results she wanted. Everything, things were so close, uh, you know, 44, 43 kind of thing. She went to the, to the lieutenant governor, asked for a dissolution. Lieutenant governor says no, because at that point, um, the NDP and the Greens had already announced we're ready to form a government, not a coalition, but we're ready to partner and had an agreement of confidence and supply. And so there was no way the lieutenant governor could say yes and let's purge parliament. So she says no, Christy Clark quits, and then it was John Horgan. Hmm, interesting. Uh, I guess the ongoing pandemic could be a reason to refuse an election call, but could that be a stance that Ms. Simon could take? I mean, it would be interesting if we were absolutely, you know, pl- like in the middle of a public health, like, you know, COVID numbers are at thousands a day kind of thing, you know, in, in Ontario alone. And if a prime minister was looking for an election at, the t- at a time where it, there was, you know, a serious public health risk, um, it is conceivable, I guess. But at the same time, uh, it's, it would be not something a governor general wants to do, right? Like, there's, they don't want to be put in this kind of position. And I think probably you know, the, pre- the political pressure alone would be enough on a prime minister. It should be enough on a prime minister to say, you know, like, this is just not the time. So hopefully it wouldn't come to that. We're chatting with Dr. Lori Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University here on The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick, in for Bill. I guess the Prime Minister can point to the pandemic recovery plan that I guess he intends to initiate or or, or continue um, as a reason for going to the polls. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think ultimately what Mr. Singh is doing is political posturing, right? Like he's trying to put some pressure on the on the prime minister to own his decision to go for an opportunistic election, because do we really need it? Well, no, actually. And does Justin Trudeau really need it? Not totally, because he man- he's managed to get quite a, f- you know, quite a bit done. And at this point, you know, f- for the last few bills that he got through the House at the end of the session, I mean, it, the Senate was was the issue. Not not the House. The House got them through. And so, so you can ask yourself the question, what Justin Trudeau needs a majority for, given the fact that Singh has pledged his his <laughs> willingness to support, you know, no matter what happens kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, Singh wants to kind of really put the pressure on him and say, why are you actually going for this? I don't think, I mean, I, I, I say this and maybe I shouldn't, but I, I don't think that Jagmeet Singh actually thinks the governor general would say no. There's just no way in hell but, um, yeah, like the prime minister might try to say, listen, like we've we've done all these things. We're at a turning point now. We need a mandate to do all the things we want to do to help rebuild the economy after COVID. And we need a public, you know, we need a vote from the public for that. There could be two reasons for Mr. Singh not wanting an election. Number one, uh, you know, he's third in the polls. Uh, number yeah. two, you know, they're, they're struggling financially in comparison to, you know, the other two major parties uh, in this country. And thirdly, maybe he's trying to cover his butt because if the pandemic numbers or cases or hospitalizations get worse and we're in election mode, I mean, it's not a good look for the politicians. Oh, for sure. Like, I, th- I think it's, it's smart politics for him in a way to distance himself from this election call and say this is kind of, you know, something that the prime minister is doing for totally opportunistic reasons. And the other thing is that if Singh wants to do better this time around, that's going to come from the liberal vote. And it's possible, right? There's a bit of, there's a movement on the progressive side because, you know, for better or for worse, the conservatives are not doing as well in the polls, it looks like. And so if Aaron O'Toole is not seen as a, 
a big threat and it's not a, oh God, we have to stop the conservatives kind of vote. Well, then there's possibility that progressive voters will move around and that could work for Singh. And so perhaps he's one of the ways he's trying to scoop some loose liberal votes is to throw shade at the prime minister for going for an early election. I guess if the reason isn't a uh, you know pandemic recovery plan or, or mandates for the prime minister, Trudeau, you know, he has called parliament dysfunctional, uh, you know, pointing to the conservatives for delaying uh, and blocking some you know pieces of legislation. Is that an argument that could fly? It's flown before in a sense, right? Like in 2008, that's what Stephen Harper said when he went to election early. And that was only a year after, like, there was a unanimous vote on the fixed election date itself. Harper went the next year and said Parliament's dysfunctional. And I mean, ultimately, you could make an argument that Parliament always has a bit of dysfunction in it. On the other hand, you could make a, a, a kind of numerical statistical argument that this government has actually got, got a lot done in the past year and a half, including all of the programs that came during COVID, but also, you know, part like the budget and the, the bills that they got before they adjourned in June. And so you could argument that actually, even though it's kind of noisy in there, this parliament has been quite functional. But I think at the end of the day, he doesn't, ha- I mean, going to the point that, that Singh made, the prime minister doesn't have to justify it to the governor general. Like, I mean, maybe if he was asking at the six-month mark and there was some, you know, kind of touch and go, is she going to go for this or not? But if he's asking for an election two years in, he doesn't have to make the case that Parliament is dysfunctional. He can just ask. And, you know, voters will decide whether that, that means something to them or not. I've always thought that if, if the pandemic wasn't a thing and, you know, Trudeau still had his uh, minority government, obviously, whether it would have lasted or not. Because, you know, during yeah. a pandemic, especially in the middle of it, wave one, wave two, who wants to go to the polls? Oh, totally. Right. Like, I mean, this, we, there's lots of ways to spin the counterfactual of what if we didn't have COVID. And I agree with you. That's a really interesting one. Because, um, you know, the, like, presumably, um, if COVID never happened, like the conservatives would still have chosen a new leader. And how would he have fared? Has, how has COVID affected him? Like, sometimes I wonder, like, looking at the numbers, I think a, a majority is possible for Trudeau, but it's definitely not a sure thing at this point. And for him, like, he, I wonder if it's more about his own timeline as prime minister. If he goes in 21 and gets a majority, then he can stay till 25, and that's his 10 years. But if he goes in 21 and gets a minority, that's not really what they wanted to do. <laughs> like, that, I think if he comes back with what he's got now, and perhaps a more hostile parliament, a stronger Jagmeet Singh, you know, and, you know, more more of, of a need for Trudeau to kind of really have to work with the parties. And when when that covid emergency feel is gone, I'm not sure the parties are necessarily going to be as cooperative as they were during covid. So there's a scenario where he actually gets a, a, a worse situation coming back. We're chatting with Dr. Lori Turnbull, director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL, 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill Kelly today. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about this new survey from Angus Reid that shows that Canadian voters aren't exactly thrilled with their choices for prime minister. Mm-hmm. Singh has the highest favorability at 46% uh, amongst people that view him positively, but only one-third believe he could be a good or excellent PM. 37% view uh, Trudeau favorably. One quarter think conservative leader Aaron O'Toole would be good or excellent as prime minister. Uh, you know, interesting numbers. Obviously, they don't really bear any weight to come voting day, but they are interesting nonetheless. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the kind of popular support for Singh as, as there's more support for him as a person than there is as a possible PM. People like him, but they're not necessarily, there, you know, prepared to, to give him the keys. 
And so we'll see whether any of like how it all translates at election time. And as you say, like these are national polls. We don't vote for leaders directly at all. And when we vote, it's in constituencies. It's not national. So sometimes these national numbers, whether they're expressed as support for the leader or for the party, you know, they can be really interesting, but they're not they're not going to determine the results. But they do remind us sometimes, you know, when you've got a national national level of support and then the popular like the popular vote and then the seat share doesn't really match, like what happened to the conservatives in the last election. That's what gets people kind of stressed out about things, too. Right. Because it's like, hey, you know, conservatives actually did got more votes last time than the liberals. But look what happened. I I always thought that Canadians voted for the party leader, even though we're not physically voting for that person. You know, we're voting for that party. We're voting for that, you know, that entity. Yeah, I I think, you know, I agree with you. And I think the research supports that, you know, that the candidate is not usually the driving force behind somebody's vote. It's got a lot to do with the leader. It's got a lot to do with the party. And then, you know, there's a few points where it makes a difference who the candidate is, but that's pretty much it. But the thing is, like, I mean, if as long as we have the electoral system we have where we're counting up the votes and who comes first in each riding, even if your your vote is ultimately determined by the leader, you know, the fact that we don't actually get that vote, we don't get that question asked of us means there's always going to be kind of a disconnect, I think, between what happens in terms of the, the translation of votes to seats. By the way, whatever happened to changing first past the post? I mean, that's really died that's out, it. hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and that was, you know, that's another thing, too. I'm I'm not a person who thinks, like, to put my own cards on the table, I don't think electoral reform would solve everything. But it was something that the prime minister brought in as part of his mandate in 2015. And then seems to me, you know, just, he never developed, he said he never developed a consensus around an alternative. Well, you know, I think the people who really dig in on electoral reform really want proportional representation. And that probably wouldn't do the Liberals any favors, right? Like, we'd never see a majority government again, which is, you know, good or bad, depending on how you look at it. I think the Liberals would probably benefit from a ranked ballot, but that's, for people who who really, again, dig in on electoral reform, that's usually not their choice. Dr. Turnbull, really appreciate the time. Enjoy your weekend. You too. Thanks so much. Dr. Lori Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University and uh, just chatting about a couple things. This new poll about, uh, you know, who would make the best prime minister or leader. But more importantly, you know, those rumblings of an election are stirring louder and louder. Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, asking in a written letter to uh, Governor General Mary Simon not to, I guess, allow the prime minister to convince her to um, go forward with an election campaign. You know, it's it's just not going to fly. I mean, there are the prime minister can make a lot of cases for getting into election mode. Hey, we we need a we need a new mandate to operate the country post pandemic. Even though we're not in that post pandemic mode, we're getting there, right? Cases are going down. People are more people are vaccinated. Uh, you know, knock on wood, schools are reopening and, and doing so safely. In about a month, we're getting to the finish line, or at least close to it. So the PM can say, hey, Ms. Simon, I think it's, you know, a good time to go to the polls and, you know, give us a mandate to implement a post-pandemic recovery plan. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. At some point next week, and we've been told that it's early next week, according to Premier Doug Ford, uh, Ontario's back-to-school plan is going to be announced. Now, Ford hinted at that uh, earlier this week um, when he was visiting Thunder Bay, 
uh, where he was meeting with local leaders to discuss the ongoing wildfires that are happening in that uh, area that's forced thousands from their homes. Um, But he said, yeah, you know, come early next week, we're going to have a plan and we'll bring it to you. Uh, Global's Dave Woodard tells us a little more on what could possibly be in this plan. Premier Doug Ford was asked about a back-to-school plan while touring the Wildlife Command Center in Thunder Bay. The minister is going to be coming out uh, early next week and, and rolling out that plan. It's a very comprehensive He says it includes new protocols to make sure that everyone's safe with a return to school. Premier Ford says getting kids back to class is of utmost importance. The kids need to get back to school. They want to get back to school and the parents want them back to school. He didn't say what might be included in the back to school plan, but on Tuesday, Dr. Moore told reporters that unvaccinated children would be subject to different COVID protocols than those who have been vaccinated. Dave Woodard at Global News. So improved air quality is one of the recommendations of the province's science advisory group, which uh, also called for schools to remain open in all but the most catastrophic scenarios. Uh, Ontario's had the longest interruption of in-person classes in Canada. Students um, were out before the Christmas break. We think there's going to be a September restart, at least we hope. Um, so that's that's a long stretch of not being in class. Let's bring in our next guest, Don Danko. She's the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board and joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Don, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Rich? I'm not too bad. Uh, have you been given any notification as to when the province's announcement is going to be made? I believe our board has received the same information that the public received, and that's a, a delay. We were hoping to get this information mid-July, and so we, we keep getting put off. Um, I'm really hopeful that we actually get the direction early next week because we're heading into August, and the countdown is on for back-to-school. What do you want to see in the province's back-to-school plan when it's unveiled, supposedly, next week? Well, first and foremost, for the sake of our students and their well-being, we are really hoping that the direction allows us to provide as close to a a normal return to in-person school as possible in the fall. And we have heard loud and clear from McMaster Children's Hospital and other key medical experts that the extended time online has had significant negative impacts on students. And we heard that from the Premier in the the announcement that uh, you played earlier. So we have been advocating for funding, support for as close a normal to return to school as possible, and we want to get direction that schools will remain open um, and only closed as an absolute last resort. Are you also expecting an option of learning from home to be included? Because there might be some parents who are not 100% confident in sending their kids back to class. Well, we already have that in place. So the ministry did provide direction that we had to provide remote learning options. So for elementary school, that would be remote learning as we saw it this year. And I think we have about 1,800 students or about 4% of our elementary students who have have registered for that at this point. For secondary students, we have e-learning options. So basically when they select their timetables, they can select e-learning as opposed to an in-person course. And um, so I think, again, we have minimal numbers, about 400 students in secondary, so maybe 3% of our students registered for that at this time. Uh, Next week, as you mentioned, is the start of August. You know, when they're talking about ventilation improvements and such, is there enough time? And maybe more importantly, is there enough money to do that? Well, I think that's a really important question, and and no ventilation continues to be a topic in the media, and people are advocating for improved ventilation, but we don't have any clear standards that we need to meet. So in our board, we did inspections and remediation for all of our ventilation systems last fall, and that included, you know, repairing where needed, changing filters where needed. So we did hear uh, Premier Ford talk about filters. 
I, I would like to know if there's going to be further direction or further requirements. Will we be required to put air purifiers in classrooms? We, we have some deployed where airflow is lower, um, but we certainly don't have funding to do that in every single classroom. So we would hope that if there's a direction uh, that is, <laughs> needs to happen in the next few weeks, that funding would accompany it. If no additional air quality improvement measures are recommended, uh, would you say that Hamilton public schools are safe from an indoor air quality perspective? I think we've done a good job at um, working on our ventilation systems and doing any improvements that we're able to do. Um, We also have a number of projects that have been ongoing this year. There's been some federal funding that came through for that. Um, Most of those should be completed over this summer. So we saw last year that uh, at Hamilton Wentworth District School Board did a great job at minimizing the risk of spread in schools, at minimizing the number of outbreaks or person-to-person spread in schools. And I believe that we're well positioned to do that again this year. Our guest is Don Danko, chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill today. If improved air quality is so important, why hasn't it been worked on or completed over the last number of weeks and months to get ready? I mean, that, that seems to be a critical part of, of this plan. Well, I think it's a, something that we've been talking about since uh, COVID started, and there were, the best opportunity would have been last spring if we could have done um, some, some improvements while students were out of school. But just think about the aging infrastructure that we have in our school boards. Think about the number of buildings that we're talking about and the expense that, that is required to actually upgrade ventilation systems in schools. Um, I'm sure if you've done any work in your home, on your furnace, your air conditioner, it, it is not cheap. So it it does take time, it it does take money, and I think, again, we need to look at what is the standard we're looking for. So what what constitutes poor ventilation or good ventilation? And I don't think that we've really clearly landed that. So we can talk about it all day. We can make some improvements, but unless we have a way to measure what is good quality versus poor quality, I'm not sure that it's a really productive conversation. Are you expecting those measurements to be released next week or at least even suggested? Uh, I could hope for that, but based on <laughs> the information we've received for the past year, I, I wouldn't be entirely hopeful that we'll have that level of clarity. Ontario's Science Advisory Table, and you, you hinted to this uh, earlier in the interview, has recommended reinstating some extracurricular activities, uh, loosening rules on masking, uh, physically distancing, cohorting, screening, while the risk is low. Um, are we comfortable in saying the risk is low right now at the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board? Well, we've always said and we've demonstrated, I think, over this past year that cases in schools reflect the cases in the community. And we know that cases in Hamilton have been um, at, at very low levels, which is fantastic. People are doing what they need to do. And of course, the vaccination rates have really contributed to lowering those levels. So I, I believe that um, some changes make sense for the safety protocols. But one thing that was mentioned in, in the introductory piece for your your show today was that the chief medical officer of health has suggested that there may be differences in protocols for people who are vaccinated and people who are not. So that's really important information that we need to receive because we're going to have to figure out how do we operationalize that? Does it impact screening? Does it impact masking? Um, What does that look like for extracurriculars? Uh, Who can participate? Uh, Hopefully everyone has access, but we understand the risk is higher 
for those who are not vaccinated. So um, we're really looking for clarity on that so that we can operationalize the direction, but also communicate with all of our families and staff. Good segue to my question about vaccinated versus unvaccinated. We know that those under the age of 12 uh, are not allowed at this point to uh, get a vaccine. Those 12 plus can. So when you're in, you know, grades seven and eight, you are potentially vaccinated. Um, and there's a lot of kids that are around you that are unvaccinated. Is that a concern? How do you plan to apply that? Well, and that's a, another great question. Uh, the challenge that we have is there is no tracking in terms of um, our pupils versus other pupils um, for who is vaccinated, who is not. So until the vaccinations are made mandatory, as far as we're aware, we can't really require people to um, let us know if they've been vaccinated. We, we have no tracking mechanism for that. And, and that's, again, some direction that would be very helpful because if there are going to be differences in requirements, um, if there are going to be, you know, in particular, if there's a positive case in a classroom and someone's a close contact, if there's a difference if they're vaccinated versus not, how do we manage that um, through public health tracing if we haven't tracked it? So what is the burden of proof? All of that is sort of up in the air. And I know there's been a lot of talk about the challenges with collecting that type of information due to privacy issues. And even if vaccines are mandated, you are going to still have, I would assume, those students uh, who are not going to get the shot. And you don't have the physical capacity in terms of school space or the resources in terms of educators to segregate the two groups. That's just impossible. We really don't. Um, we, we, we don't have the information to be able to do that at this time, but we wouldn't have the capacity to do that even if we could track who is vaccinated and who is not. And, and some parents have asked the question, well, will I be able to know how many unvaccinated students are in the class? And the answer is no. We, we can't share that information. We don't have that information at this time. Um, we'll look for direction from the ministry and from the government uh, if we are going to be required to track that at any time. Um, there is one opportunity, though, if I could mention this. Uh, we do vaccination clinics for grade sevens, uh, usually for MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, for HPV vaccines. There may be an opportunity for those who haven't been able to access vaccinations due to any number of barriers that do want to get it to provide those clinics in schools. And I think that would be a great opportunity this fall. Has there been any discussion? I think the answer is probably no, but has there been any discussion around the education world, if you will, that those who are unvaccinated, and that's basically everyone in elementary school, must learn online until they're vaccinated? Certainly that has cropped up on social media and, and certainly there have been comments to that effect. Um, has anyone in the education sector taken that seriously? No. Um, we know that in-person learning is absolutely critical for students. And if we if we didn't understand the impacts of, of not being in person, we learned that this spring. Um, we absolutely need to do what we need to to support people to safely return in person, whether they're vaccinated or not. Got a couple more minutes here with Don Danko. She's the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill. Still with the vaccines, there are some people that say um, all frontline healthcare workers, all educators should be mandated to get a COVID-19 vaccine. The premier has said he's not going to force people to get a shot. Where does the board stand on this? Well, certainly we are following the advice of public health and following the direction from the ministry. Um, we understand that people do have the choice to get a vaccination. Even for vaccines that are mandated, there is a process to be exempt from that. So if this ever became mandated, I would expect that may happen if there was a, another variant of concern that, that would cause an increase in cases. 
then then the ministry may take that direction, the government may take that direction, but there still would have to be a process where people could get an exemption for a number of different reasons and not have to disclose those particular reasons. Can you envision a time this school year where students are allowed to remove their masks? Well, we are excited to hear uh, that outdoors we, we can expect, as long as they can be spaced out somewhat, they shouldn't have to wear masks. And I, I think if we all thought about the weather in June, um, returning in September, that, that's a bit of a concern in, in hot weather if we do have hot days. I think indoors we may have opportunities when students are seated at their seats. Um, if you know we are confident with our ventilation systems and our other measures that are in place, if cases are low, there may be an opportunity. But again, we'll follow any direction and guidance from both public health and from the ministry. Can you believe it's almost August? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> July is flown by. I cannot believe it, but I really hope that our students and our families and our staff have all had some downtime because this year has been unlike any other. And and I think anyone who's taken time away from the computer and gotten outside has started to realize how important that is. Definitely. Don, uh, thanks for the time, and uh, we'll touch base with you down the road. Thank you, Rick. Take care. You too. Don Danko is the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL, 900 CHML. I mean, this is going to be huge news, the province's back-to-school plan. It's got to be all-encompassing. It's got to It's gotta hit a home run. It's got to be a grand slam. Anything short of a monumental thumbs-up from everyone in this province who has a child in education, it's not going to be a good scenario for the Ford government. they got to get this right. So, yes, improved air quality, whether that's Uh, Air filtration system, air filters in classrooms, beefed up air ventilation systems or air return systems. That's got to be in there. If if there's schools out there, and I'm sure there's plenty of them, that they're even second-guessing whether or not their infrastructure can be as safe as it can, those improvements have to be made. And this government, and I think at times has been uh, doing a good job in terms of um directing funds to where it needs to be directed to make those improvements. I think a funding portion of next week has to be not necessarily overwhelming, but on the ball. And I'm, I'm very you know, hopeful that this plan is going to be a good one. They've had how many weeks, how many months to dissect a back-to-school plan literally since last December. I mean, we're going on a Christmas break, and we all know that the kids aren't going to go back into the classroom after that break. Now, none of us, I think, expected that that was going to extend for the rest of the school year, but that's that's basically what happened. But they've had all this time, basically since last December, to think about, all right, what's going to happen in September? You know, we're done Wave 2, we're done Wave 3 now. Is there going to be a Wave 4? If it is, it's probably going to be only the unvaccinated, and we're seeing that certainly in the statistics. 90% of the people who have contracted COVID-19 since Vaccines were a thing in mid-December last year. 90% of the people were unvaccinated. That is an overwhelming statement to get your shot. And when it comes to schools, we know that there's a lot of kids, the bulk of elementary school students, who cannot get a COVID-19 vaccine. Can they spread the virus? Can they share the virus? Yeah, in some instances that has been shown, but it's not an overwhelming you know, outbreak scenario in terms of elementary kids 
and, and, and those outbreaks in class. It is basically a community outbreak that kind of finds its way into the schools. So fingers crossed that the provincial government gets it right this time around. Uh, should mention the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario um, released an open letter to the Premier earlier this week urging him to include improved ventilation, which we talked about, mandatory indoor masking, which, yeah, you know, come September that's got to be a thing, and hopefully one day soon that won't have to be a thing. Smaller class sizes. I, I think we'll get there by default because some are still learning from online. I don't think it's going to be small as some would like to see. Mandatory vaccination of teachers, I don't think we're going to see that. The Premier has already said that, you know, it's uh, an individual's constitutional right to say no to a vaccine. I would hope that most, if not all, teachers are going to be fully vaccinated by the time September rolls around. And the RNAO also suggesting that uh, permanent employment status for 625 public health nurse positions in Ontario schools becomes a reality. And, yeah, now we're talking about more funding for that, too. And I would, you know, put my hand up to vote in favor of that. It's just going to make our kids and our teachers and our staff uh, a little bit safer. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.